chapter 4. Lord, we cover this in prayer. We want you to change us and transform us. Just completely make us yours as we see you in glory today. Amen. After these things, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. And so we have the beginning of this uh, chapter start with an interesting phrase, after these things. And it's here where we see that God is a summoner. God summons. And he summons, in this case, in a, in a specific time frame, a time frame that was metatauta in the Greek. Metatauta. After these things. This is an important phrase because it kicks us back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, which has been called the divine outline of the book of Revelation, the divine outline. So for those of you that are like, Revelation just seems so big, and how could I ever understand it? And there's so much weird and wacky imagery, and uh, you know, just one thing that helps in Bible studying is to outline things, and then you begin to get an idea of what's happening. And Revelation 1.19 does that for us, where Jesus says to John, write the things, number one, which you have seen. Number two, the things which are And number three, the things which will take place after this, okay? So the first thing is uh, something that John had seen. And John writes in his epistles, in in his gospel, so much about how he was someone who'd seen Jesus. He had eyewitnessed Jesus. It was something that he loved to witness and testify about. Uh, It was a real privilege that he had. And in chapter one, again, he sees Jesus in glory. And so that's a great starting point in this outline is John saw Jesus, which is really the revelation. The book of Revelation is Jesus revealed. But then he's to write about the things which are. And that covers chapters two and three, where Jesus writes seven letters to seven real actual churches in Asia Minor, in the Turkey area. And it's believed that that is considered the church age. So seven real letters, interestingly, represent much of a panoramic picture of church history. And it's in chapter one and chapter two that about 19 times we have the word church, okay? So church, 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 church. I lost track of what number I was on, but I don't even think I got to 10 on that one. So, so much written to the church, about the church, rebukes to the church, promises to the churches that repent, commendation to the churches that have been faithful. And and that is a time frame that we even currently are in today, the church age. But then there is the third part of the outline, which covers from chapter four all the way through the rest of the book. And it is the future. All right. It is the things which will take place after this, after what? After the church age. And so chapter four, verse one, the church age has just ended in in the letters to the churches. Chapter four, verse one kind of ends that Church, 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 and then moves forward to what's going to take place after that. And so here he says, after these things, after what things or after what? Well, after the letters to the church, most certainly. And in my convictions, as I've studied a lot in this topic, uh, I believe it's after the church age that the next action is going to happen. The next event is going to happen. And so what happens? He says, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven or an entrance standing open in heaven. 
The only reference to a door in heaven in the book of Revelation is here in chapter 4, verse 1. Some, some sort of door or entrance into heaven. Uh, there are two other references in Revelation to have the heavens being opened. But here there's more of like this specific door or entrance of some kind. And so there's this entrance in it, and he hears a voice kind of all at the same time where he says, the first voice which I heard, which is in chapter 1, in verses 10 through 11, okay, it's a voice that was like a trumpet speaking with me. And here's what it says. Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. So in Revelation chapter 1, Uh, I guess that's three chapters ago or four, depending on where your starting point is there. Uh, In chapter one, verse 10, John is in the spirit on the Lord's day, worshiping on a Sunday, and he hears behind him a loud voice. By the way, John, I just looked at you and I got to say, you have one of the most powerful voices I've ever heard. We were at the LRS fest, a concert together one time, and he's just talking to me over the entire music. And I'm like, and he's just talking. He's not yelling. He's just like, yeah, man, the Lord's been doing such a work in my life. I just can't, you know, I'm like, dude, I'm trying to sing with Diamond Rio here, but you know, this is actually, you know, I'm kidding, but you might have the trumpet built in there, John. Um, we just looked at you. I was like, that's one guy I just know. All right. Well, Jesus has a voice like a trumpet in Revelation one saying, I'm the alpha and the omega, the first and the last. So John is referencing whatever voice he's hearing saying, come up here is the same voice that was in chapter one, uh, saying I'm the alpha and the omega. Okay. And what does this trumpet, trumpety voice have to say? He says, come up here or anabino in the Greek. And it means to come on aboard. It means to actually sprout and to grow or to ascend. And what happens when the Lord says, come here, (laughs) you're, you're there. I mean, it's like, I mean, and that's what happened. Look at verse two. Immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne. So come up here, you know, immediately I'm in the spirit. And as I speak this to you, just the more I've studied this and I've spent time studying different positions on eschatology, which is the study of end times. I've just spent, I just have had the Lord work in me and just humbly, like my position here, I just humbly come and I'm going to share it with you over the next many weeks in Revelation. And I've learned that there's a lot of Jesus lovers out there and a lot of Bible studiers who would hold a different position Um, and so like, I just humbly say, but as I've heard them, I've just said, I just, I, I, I keep just, I come back to kind of these understandings and, um, and I've, I've studied this kind of stuff a lot. And so I just, it's my conviction and you guys are pretty sensible people and you've got leatherback books in your hands. So read them yourself and keep loving me. If you hold a different position, I'll keep loving you and really, you know, you know, I'll tell you you're wrong when we're getting raptured before, the, you know, and, and you can tell me I'm wrong, you know, when the Antichrist sets himself up in Jerusalem and you're like, dude, like, and I'll be like, whoa, guess it doesn't really matter, does it? Okay. All right. But, uh, but I believe that this scene in Revelation four is a foreshadowing of the rapture of the church. So now just to be clear, as a good Bible student, the immediate context is, you know, verse one, John is on Patmos and he is in fact supernaturally transported to heaven to witness and record events of the last days. But at the same time, there's no denying some very specific language that is symbolic of the rapture of the church in these words. Now in chapter four, verse one, do I see the word rapture? No. Okay. It's not there. Um, but the Bible actually has the word rapture. Now you might be like, well, I've never found it in my concordance. And it's like, yeah, you're right. Because it's from the Latin and the Greek languages 
that you'll read the word rapture. And we'll get there in a little bit, but just so you know, in Latin, it's the word raptus. And in Greek, it's the word harpazo. And it means to be caught up, okay? To be snatched up, to be caught away, to be plucked up, or to be taken somewhere by a powerful force, okay? And here we have uh, John, and he's got these letters that he's written to these different churches, and then there's a door open in heaven, and, you know, he's, uh, here's the voice of a trumpet, say, come up here, and boom, shalakalaka, there's a rapture that happens of some sort, okay? Whether you want to call it the rapture of the church, he's raptured. I mean, that's just what happened, okay? He's caught up there. But it happened after the church age. It happened after the letters to these churches where even they're uh, encouraged that if they would overcome, they would be kept out of the hour of trial that would come upon the whole earth. And, and here we have this John with a door standing open in heaven. Now the word heaven is mentioned 50 times in Revelation, heaven, 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 heaven. Okay, I'm not, I'm just kidding. Won't do it. Uh, but 50 times in the book of Revelation and in the scriptures, there's actually three different heavens, okay? There's the first heaven, all right? And that in the scripture refers to the atmosphere. So it's like the blue sky, the clouds where the birds fly, where clouds float, where dew and rain um, is all found in our environment, okay? And then the scripture speaks of a second heaven, okay? And that's the universe, that's the celestial, that uh, is where the sun and the moon and the stars and the planets are found, okay? And we can see that. Uh, lately, I've been spending a lot of time in my backyard at night and just to see, I think I've counted 15 shooting stars in the last month and a half. We're just spending a lot of time out there. We're look, we see the Milky Way galaxy. Um, you know, it's just such a beautiful view. Spend some time outside uh, and, and see the second heaven. Okay. Then there's the third heaven, which is the dwelling place of God. Okay. It's what we often think of as heaven. Uh, it's where the throne of God is. It's where God resides. It's where he renders judgment. It's where his blessings flow from. And then, of course, there's Seventh Heaven, which was a 90s TV show on TBS. You may remember. Okay, just kidding. That's not in the Bible. All right. <clears throat> so thanks to technology, we're able to go uh, into the first heaven. You hop in a plane. You know, you get in a balloon, and, and you're in the first heaven. This is heaven. Yes, it is, right? Um, by technology, we can go to the second heaven. We've put a man on the moon. I've been noticing that as I'm looking at the moon. I'm like, someone was there, you know? There's a flag, you know, America, right? That's our land. All right, anyways, just kidding. Um, maybe the Russians have a flag there too, I don't know. But, but we've been there, okay? But the third heaven, we can only get there by the grace of God, by the mercy of God, and by believing in the gospel of God. That is how we get to heaven, okay? By his grace and through faith in what he has done, all right? And it's here where God's voice of a trumpet says, come up here. Now, it's important to note, again, this trumpety voice, where in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty one, this trumpety voice is referenced. And my mind goes to the actor Jack Black, who likes to sing and kind of go do a little, okay, so maybe that's what Jesus was doing here, you know? But probably not. Okay. But look at this trumpet. It's also in 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Here's a mystery. We're not all going to die. Is that crazy to anybody here? Like, it might be us. Okay. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. We shall be transformed. We shall be metamorphosized. When, when would this happen and how would this happen? Paul tells us in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, 
For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. So something that we see here is that the rapture will happen immediately. Okay. Just as John was immediately in the spirit, so too in a moment in the Greek word, it's atomos. All right. Chuck Missler says that this is the smallest measurable unit in all of creation. Whether you're discussing weight, length, breadth, time, the smallest atom is 10 to the 43rd power. Uh, It's this tiny little degree. It's how much weight I've lost this month. Okay. An atomos. All right. But a moment and just, it's going to be in a, just a teeny weetsy bit of time. Okay. Well, how tweensy weensy, Rory, can I say a twinkling of an eye? The twinkling of an eye. I grew up in a home where my mom would often ponder how handsome and wonderful my dad was. And she'll always tell me when you were just a twinkle in your daddy's eye, you know, and I'm like, I don't know the science behind that, but (laughs) I think it was that first look, you know, my parents met while my grandpa took my mom out to the my dad's ranch and to get manure for the garden. And my mom held the, it's the sack and my dad scooped it in. And at some point there, I came to be the twinkle. Okay. We're going to need to edit that from today's sermon. Okay. It's been estimated that the human eye twinkles 10 times between consecutive blinks. The eye does three things. The wink, the blink, and the twink. Okay. (laughs) A twinkle, this is science. Johnny, are you here? The twinkle is a reflected particle of light seen in the eye and thus travels at the speed of 983 million five hundred and seventy one thousand fifty six feet per second this equates to an inestimable oh infinite infinite small fraction of a second so it would be fair to say it occurs in about a billionth of a second it's not the time it takes to blink an eye For you to see someone's eye twinkle, light must travel through the front of their eye, be reflected off their retina, and then exit their eye. Okay, so when and what is this moment of being caught up, raptured, raptused, harpazoed into the presence of the Lord? I don't even know if you would know that it happened. You're just in the presence of the Lord. Okay, this twinkling of an eye moment. All of the language concerning the rapture of the church is that of immediate, imminent, sudden, and quick action. And it's also going to happen at the last trumpet. Now, when is this last trumpet or what is this last trumpet? Those who believe that Jesus gathers his people after he's poured out his wrath on the planet earth sometimes argue that it's the last trumpet of judgment or the last trumpet judgment that we'll read of in Revelation 11 in like one or two weeks. I think we'll get there. But the last trumpet may not refer to the last trumpets of the seven trumpet judgments in Revelation at all, but simply refer to the last trumpet believers here on this earth. The last trumpet may be connected to the trumpet of God in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4.16 that we'll read in just a second. But not with the trumpets of the angels in Revelation 11. So there's a distinction or a difference between the trumpet of an angel and the trumpet of God. Chuck Smith points to a grammatical construction that would be different if this trumpet we're the trumpet of Revelation chapter 11 in the middle of the wrath, wrathy tribulation period. H.A. Ironside, I was just reading about Ironside yesterday because I'm using him in Mark. And this is a guy that heard Moody preach at a young age in the 1800s. And he was 11 years old and he wanted to see kids get saved. And there was no Sunday school in his area of Chicago. So him and his friends knit 
burlap sacks together to make a tent. And they had about 60 kids come every Sunday to their Sunday school and he preached the gospel to them. So H.A. Ironside, what a great guy. But he says that the last trumpet was a figure of speech that came from the Roman military when they would break camp. The first trumpet meant strike the tents and prepare to leave. The second trumpet meant fall into line. And the third and last trumpet meant march away. So this last trumpet describes the Christians marching orders at the rapture of the church. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 through 18. It says, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. Now, I think there's like four things in the scripture that Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant about. And sadly, they are things that the church is ignorant about, okay? Uh, whether that's God's heart for Israel later on in the book of Romans, whether that's concerning spiritual gifts uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the rapture of the church and end times and eschatology. We just don't read the book of Revelation. We don't study eschatology. And so we just don't even know like at all. Okay. Um, and so he, and so he says, I, I just don't want you to be ignorant concerning people who have died lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. Now the context was some people were coming into the Thessalonian church and saying that, that like the day of the Lord had already come and that there was no hope for those people that had already died. And so they were really messed up because of this false teaching that had come through. But Paul says in first Thessalonians four thirteen, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this, we say to you by the words of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Okay, so uh, real quick, just a little order of things here. So, you know, my father passed away. I was 19 years old, just recently went to the graveyard where he was buried, uh, saw his little mausoleum spot. We just buried my wife's grandfather. We have a lot of family members down there at uh, the funeral, uh, at, the, at the cemetery. Whatever we call that place down in Klamath Falls, just went bankrupt. No one's taking care of it. There's weeds growing all over the place. It's like statues falling over. It's a great place to go and remember what death does to you. Um, but uh, as we're there, we're remembering First Thessalonians four that okay, when the rapture happens, okay, before the Christian goes, the body of my father will come out of that marble mausoleum, be transformed to a glorious body, meet his spirit that's already been with the Lord, and worship Jesus, okay? And like within that twink, okay, those who are alive and remain, we're going to catch them in the air. We're going to meet them and Jesus in the air, okay? And we all, okay, so that's just a little bit of the order that we've seen so far. And verse 16 goes on to say, this is First Thessalonians 4, 16. For the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, or NIV is loud command, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. Okay, so that's the word raptus in Latin, caught up, harpazo in the Greek, snatched up, plucked away by force, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord where? In the air. Okay, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. So this is such a fantastically exciting time in human history. There's been like nothing like it since Jesus was walking the earth. This is the moment of human history that, man, we have the honor to be a part of it. So exciting to be there with the Lord in this time. Uh, one way or another, we'll get to be there anyways, as you've read. Now, you'll see that we meet Jesus in the air and we'll always be with the Lord. And there's a distinction, though, between all that we've studied so far about the rapture and what many confuse it as the second coming of Jesus, okay? 
So later on in Revelation chapter 19, we're going to study the second coming of Jesus. But just a couple differences real quick are the rapture will happen in the twink in a moment. All right. The twinkling of an eye. All right. And the second coming will be a a long pronounced event of human history that the whole world will observe. And while we meet Jesus in the air in the rapture, Jesus actually comes and we come with Jesus in the second coming. And Jesus doesn't stay in the air. He comes and he will set his feet on the Mount of Olives and he will begin his earthly reign, the millennial reign. So that's like totally different experiences, totally different amounts of time that it takes, totally different locations where we'll be going. And, uh, and even before Jesus comes back in Revelation chapter 19, so even today we're going to see in Revelation 4, we're going to see that we're in heaven with Jesus worshiping him, casting down our golden crowns before him. And even later in Revelation, I'm doing this to mean we're in heaven, okay? So this is up, okay? Over here, Revelation chapter 19, there's the lamb's wife, there's the bride, she's made herself ready, and it's the marriage supper of the lamb. Who gets to be at the marriage supper of the lamb? Believers, Christians, okay? Immediately following the marriage supper of the lamb is the second coming. And saints clothed in white come with him to come down and to judge those who are rejecting him and to then set up his kingdom on earth for a thousand year reign. There's so much there, so much there. You guys already like, okay. John's cross-eyed right now. It's like, let's, okay. Okay, cool. All right. Some of this, let's get into it now. Some of it, it's just, we're going to see it more as we just progress through the word over the course of time. All right. But what a gift for this lonely old apostle who's been, you know, boiled alive in hot oil. If you don't know that about John, the revelator banished to the Island of Patmos to work in the rock mines. And he's just like there on a Sunday, just worshiping the Lord. And the Lord's like, boom, shalakalaka. I'm going to show you something awesome. Come up here. Immediately I'm in the presence of the Lord. And the Lord's like, I got a little gift of refreshment for you, man. Come into my presence. Enjoy. All right. What a gift for John. And we'll see, behold, a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne. So now begins the always be with the Lord time in human history. Okay, so those who die, they immediately go in the presence of the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So I believe my father who loved Jesus with all his heart is in the presence of the Lord. And then we who are alive and will remain at the rapture will be caught up and we will always be with the Lord. And this begins this always be with the Lord time. It's, it's something to look forward to. If you're not looking forward to it, we just need to go to prayer and be like, okay, Lord, obviously there's some others awesome stuff in my life that I love a little more than you. This is it. This is like humans created to be in the presence of the Lord. This is the Garden of Eden restored for us, okay? Walking with the Lord, always with the Lord. And he's before a throne set in heaven. Revelation has been called the throne book as the throne is referenced 36 times in this book. I counted it this week. Someone else said 40, so I don't know if it was a translation difference, but up to 36 to 40 times. Throne, 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 throne. Okay, we won't do that again, but... A lot of throne there, okay? And here we're going to see this beautiful, colorful picture of what the throne of God is like in heaven. I don't know about you, but I'm kind of a throne guy, okay? I like movies where there's a throne scene. I like the Disney princesses, and I like the, you know, these different movies that are out these days. You know, Robin Hood, and there he is, and, you know, he's knighted, and whatever. You know, I love, like, a good throne room scene. Anybody else? No, you're more of like, let's go out to the, okay, Dan, you and me, bud. Let's watch something later with a throne scene in it. All right. I mean, it's just majestic and the courts are there. Something special is happening and the king's got all his garb on, you know, and he's got his bride there with him and they've got the thrones and I mean, they've got a little step like this and someone's coming, someone's being honored. Someone's looking at how majestic the king is. There's a good throne scene right here for us today, guys. I like to call it a kaleidoscope of colors in this room. You guys remember kaleidoscopes? You know, just look at all the colors. 
That's what we're going to see. Book of Revelation, there's so many beautiful colors. And here in the throne room, we've got a little bit um, of it. But the interesting thing is we often think of heaven as a big white world with clouds and harps, you know. And it's like maybe a little, okay. But a whole lot of color, all right. Let's check it out. But interesting, it says, and one sat on the throne. So we're in the throne room. And here, John the Revelator is seeing God, okay? Now, chapter 4, he sees God the Father. Chapter 5, he's going to see God the Son, okay? We're going to see God the Spirit here before the throne as well, all right? But here we see God, someone sitting on it. And as he goes to describe someone sitting on it, there's a little bit of that whole biblical thing of like, can't really gaze at God too much, you know? Um, because he just begins to describe what it's like around God, okay? And so he, he says, first of all, one who sat on the throne. And there's just a nice, a nice little side note here. One chapter ago, chapter 3, verse 21, to the lukewarm church in Laodicea, Jesus says, if you overcome this sick state of lukewarmness, I'm going to grant you to sit with me on my throne, and so as we see the throne, it's like, it's like got a lot of seats on it if you want to come sit on it, okay? You can be a part of this majestic scene of heaven if you overcome uh, any lukewarmness and carnality in your life. Move on to verse 3. He who sat there was like a jasper. Stop. Maybe you'll notice a little footnote in your Bible that says, and you omits he who sat there. Okay, the NU is the majority text. It's the main source for the translation of the Bible that we have. And so as translators and copyists, they were trying to make it easy for us to understand as we would read it. And so very helpful though that, hey, but in the original, he's actually not gonna be talking about the one who sat on it, but the throne itself here, okay? So it's actually translated one sat on the throne, and the throne was like a jasper and a sardis stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Okay, so get your kaleidoscope out. Use your imagination. In fact, I'm going to help you. I got some pictures today. Hopefully they come through. Let's look at the first red rock. Okay, just beautiful beautiful. All right. These are Jasper stones. All right. So the throne has this appearance like a Jasper. Now I am just such a geologist. So I wrote a little something about the Jasper stone. Jasper, an aggregate of microgranular quartz and or chalcedony and other mineral phases. It's an opaque, impure variety of silicia. Amen. Usually it's red yellow, brown, or green in color, and rarely blue. Okay, so maybe we're just mostly red here, or maybe in heaven it's got a little of all of it, right? Um, the mineral aggregate breaks into smooth surface and is used for ornamentation or as a gemstone. Quote Wikipedia. Okay, um, and so now we've got the Sardis stone. Okay, so hopefully the throne has red, but maybe some other cool yellows, browns, and maybe a little blue in there. And also, real quick, remember the jasper? It's used because it's so smooth. It's used in ornamental. So it just here's the throne of God. It's an ornamental likeness of a, of a jasper. The Sardis stone, similar to a jasper, also red in appearance. Gordon Fee notes that in Exodus 28, these are the first and last of the 12 stones mentioned in the description on the breastplate of the high priest. And both of them are red. Fee says the jasper stone may represent majesty and holiness and purity. The carnelian stone signifying wrath and judgment. So, the throne of God, purity, holiness, and also judgment. It's going to be happening from that throne in just a little bit. Let's move on. And there was a rainbow around the throne. We're people that love rainbows, right? I mean, we, and I mean that in like a good way, right? We also are a culture that the rainbow has been robbed from us. But 
not going there. I did already. I'm, I went there. We're going back, okay? We love a good rainbow. And first book of the Bible, we see the rainbow. The promise of God to never judge the world again in a flood. All right? The last book, we have a rainbow again in the throne room of God. And I was reading Spurgeon, and he was talking about going to a waterfall back in the 1800s. And it was such a huge waterfall with a mist that the rainbow made a circle. And maybe you've seen something like that, just a circular rainbow. full. And he was just getting into the fullness of God in this circular rainbow. But notice it's apparently like green, like an emerald. Got a picture of an emerald, okay? I think emerald was Titus's birthstone. Nope, not even close. Oh, Lindsay's birthstone. I've got her many things made out of emerald just to show her how much I love her. So this is a nice grainy Google image of an emerald, okay? But green, right? God bless the Irish, okay? I wonder if L. Frank Baum, who wrote The Wizard of Oz, had the throne room of God in mind when you get to the emerald city and you get there to where the wizard's going to be and it's just all green. I wonder if somehow he had read this and thought, that sounds like an amazing throne room. Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 28 Ezekiel's get, and we're going to read a little more of Ezekiel and Isaiah, but he has a throne room experience and there's an appearance of a rainbow. He says in a cloud on a rainy day. So was the appearance of the brightness all around it. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So don't worry guys, God is going to reclaim the rainbow and it's just going to be so awesome. And we love rainbows. Our church website picture has a rainbow over Barnes Butte. I mean, got to love a good rainbow. And the Lord is just using it to declare and show his glory. Verse four, just so you know, I have four minutes left, okay? And a 40 minute message. So you're starting to drift. I can give him four more minutes and then give me another 12 just to really finish her up, okay? <laughs> Around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes and they had crowns of gold in their head, on their heads. So 24 thrones around the thrones, okay? Here's elders mentioned. Elders represent the church in the New Testament. Uh, Why are there 12? Perhaps, uh, I'm sorry, why are there 24? Perhaps 12 are representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And those men who looked forward to the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the cross, and perhaps the other 12 are representing the New Testament church and the apostles. And, uh, and so we have this representation of a church, both the old, the new, and people who've been redeemed throughout all human history. Um, but uh, later on in chapter 21 of Revelation, we read of the heavenly city of uh, the New Jerusalem And the names of the 12 tribes of Israel are written on its gates, as well as the names of the 12 apostles on its foundations. And so just the value of those 12 names and those representations kind of leads us in interpreting to say, I think these 24 have something to do with, you know, the tribes and the apostles. Okay. Um, And uh, now many would say that they are angels or angels that even represent those things. But when I read the Bible, I don't read angels in these types of roles, nor wearing these types of things um, in, in their ministry. In fact, Hebrews 1.14 says, angels are all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. Uh, when we speak of elders in the Bible, and here the word is presbyteros, where we get our English word presbytery. It's never used of angels anywhere in the Bible, only of men who are leading and representing the church. We also see that these 24 elders are clothed in white robes, the clothing of the redeemed. And while angels also have white robes as well, um, we see the most references of that. And even in the context, just a chapter earlier, we see those who've not defiled their garment will walk with me in white for they are worthy This is Revelation 3, 4, and 5. He who overcomes will be clothed in white garments. 
And then we have these crowns on their head. It's the interesting thing. They're golden crowns, but they are not diadems as we often think of kingly crowns. Rather, we have Stephanos crowns, which are the award crowns that you would often see in the Olympics. And so we have these leafy, awardy, something that's been given in award. And so this leads me to believe that the first Corinthians has taken place of the Bema seat judgment, uh, where these individuals have uh, they represent the church. We've received the rewards of the things we've done in the body for the glory of God. And now we have these crowns as the scripture speaks uh, to Timothy, that anyone who loves the appearance of Jesus will receive crowns. First Peter chapter five, those who faithfully shepherd and elder the flock of God will receive a crown of glory that will not fade away. First Thessalonians two nineteen, 19, uh, Paul says, you all are my crown and my rejoicing on the day of his appearing. And so when we get there and you, you faithfully follow the gospel and we endure to the end, this is my crown that I will rejoice and glorify God in, in that day. In Revelation 2.10, if you're faithful unto death, I'll give you the crown of life. If you overcome You'll be clothed in white garments, Revelation 3.5, Revelation 3.21, and I'll grant with you to sit on my throne. And so I think contextually what we're seeing here in the 24 elders is a representation of the church made up of Jews and Gentiles worshiping before the throne of God. And from the throne, okay, so my timer's done, but I'm not going to stop. I'm hitting it for another 10, okay? 10. You can do it, guys. You can do it. If I can do it, you can do it, Okay. Maybe not. I can certainly do it. You might not be able to do it, but we're recording it. So just sit there. You can listen to what you miss later. All right. How are you falling asleep during this? This is it guys. This is like, Oh, this is, this is it. I mean, this ought to get your heart rate monitor on your watch. Like I'm so excited about the throne room of God right now. This is the best. Okay. This is the best. And it's only going to get better. Let's keep going. Look at this. And from the throne proceed lightnings, thunderings. I know you guys get excited about lightning and thunder. We have had a week of it, haven't we? My wife loves a good lightning storm. I mean, she is just, she will be in seventh heaven if there's a thunder and lightning storm. And this week, just so spectacular. Boom, boom. All right, so lightning, lighten up the whole atmosphere, right? And it just causes everybody to go, oh, and it doesn't get old. It's like, boom, oh, and then you're still, you know, doing whatever. Boom, oh, boom, oh, you know, and it's like, this could go on forever and just still be incredible. Then in the words of Lightning McQueen, after lightning always comes thunder. All right. Boom, rumble, window shaking, dogs going under the couch. It changes us. Lightning and thunder. It causes awe-inspiring. There's just something so big over all of this. And if he can create boom and snap, then what else can he do? This is incredible. And so from the throne of God, boom, it is just quite spectacular. Okay? Whew. This is what happened in Exodus chapter 19 when the Mount Sinai and the glory of the Lord went over Mount Sinai and Moses goes up to get the Ten Commandments. It was thunder and lightning and smoke that covered the whole mountain. Whew. Okay. Mount's notes in Revelation, the symbols of thunder and lightning are always connected with a temple scene. A temple scene. And mark an event of unusual import. Something's about to happen as the lightning and thunder. Okay, moving on. What else does John see in the throne room of heaven? Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Not going to get into that a lot. Don't get all wiggity whacked, you know, because of the seven spirits of God. And I thought there was one. And this it's referenced many times in Revelation. And it takes us back to Isaiah 11, 2 where there's this sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit, okay? The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So it's just this seven-faceted 
um, Holy Spirit who is ministering uh, on the earth and uh, in the heavens. Verse 6, before the throne, there was a sea of glass like a crystal. Uh, or the language is something like a sea of glass, like crystal. Now, it's funny. Whenever I teach this, I go back to my younger years of wakeboarding, okay? And, and it happened to be this week, we spent some time with some family. My um, sister-in-law just got a boat and my brother-in-law, and they brought it to Prineville Reservoir. And after seven years, I decided to wakeboard and wake surf again. And, um, and no one was up there. You know, we homeschool our kids, so they weren't in school. We can go when everyone's in school. We go to the lake, okay? And, um, but we did arithmetic and reading and all that while we were there. Don't worry about it. Okay. <laughs> and it was just perfect. Like the weather was perfect and there was just the sea of glass most of the day. Just, I mean, when you're carving on a wakeboard, there's just such a smooth feeling. It's just wonderful. And it just always takes my mind to the throne room of God, the sea of glass. There's this, there's this peaceful sea, all right? A sea of glass uh, in the throne room of heaven. Uh, Fee says the sea is usually a negative imagery in scripture as a place that is wild and untamed, but here we see it's clearly been tamed, appearing as glass. Ezekiel's vision says the likeness of the firmament above the heads in the throne room was the color of an awesome crystal and stretched out over their heads. Okay, moving on in Revelation. In the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in the front and back. So here we're going to see some interesting creatures. It's going to just, it's going to make you just wonder what you're reading. Use your imagination a little bit here. We're going to see these four living creatures that have been created for the sole purpose of observing the glory of God, reflecting the glory of God, worshiping the glory of God, declaring the glory of God. And in 6.1, one one of the living creatures is going to show John the opening of the seal judgments and the tribulation period. Ezekiel 10 calls these angels cherubim, that they are a high order of angels, cherubim. And I believe it's uh, Isaiah 6 calls a similar but yet different type of angel seraphim. So cherubim and seraphim. They are full of eyes on the front and the back. So they're kind of like your mom, okay? Like eyes on the back of their head. This just shows just omniscience, just always there worshiping and observing the glory of God in his actions um, and just bringing glory to God there. Uh, It goes on to say the first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like a calf. The third living creature had the face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Now, interesting because as you read Ezekiel or as you read Isaiah, um, it, it actually says that each living creature had aspects of each animal within themselves. So, you know, those uh, holographic baseball cards, you know, where, and then you wiggle it. Okay. In a sense, you've got these angels that different aspects, you're viewing more the lion, you're viewing more the man, you're viewing more the ox or the calf, you're viewing more the eagle. And Irenaeus, one of the church fathers earlier on in church history, helped us understand that when the gospels were written, Matthew's gospel went forth with a stamp or a seal on it of a lion. The purpose of Matthew's gospel was to show that Jesus is the king of the Jews. When Mark's gospel was written, a stamp went upon it that was that of an ox or a calf, symbolizing Jesus as the servant king. When Luke's gospel went forth, the stamp upon that was a seal of a man. As Jesus, Luke's gospel tells us Jesus was fully man as well as fully God, fully intelligent, fully human. And John's gospel went forth with the stamp or the seal of an eagle soaring, speaking of the deity of God um, and, and John's gospel's context is that Jesus is God. And so you have these uh, creatures before heaven fully uh, observing and fully reflecting even that who they've been created to worship. Uh, that is Jesus. Moving on. Verse 8. The four living creatures, each having six wings. Okay, so how's your imagination doing, guys? 
Okay? I've always just, I've seen horrible drawings of this. Don't even Google search this stuff, okay? It'll ruin it. Like, I've just seen, like, fat calves, you know, just kind of like, I'm like, they were probably buff, okay? They probably are like, what? You know? It's just probably so much more spectacular than what we can imagine is what I'm getting at there. Man, I'm wasting time. <clears throat> Six wings, okay? Uh, other places in the word show with two wings, they covered their face. With two wings, they covered their feet. They're in the holiness of God, man. It's like, got to protect yourself. And then with two wings, they fly, all right? Again, full of eyes all around and within. And they do not rest day or night. I think it was Adrian Rogers said, these guys are God's cheerleaders all day long. They're like, you go, you are awesome, okay? Um, they understand him with their eyes. They cry out day and night, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. No rest, no rest. You guys, seriously, it's like, oh, ten, give me 10 more minutes, okay? You're ready for heaven if you can't handle another three minutes in this church. Like, you're probably not. Like, these guys, day and night, right? Holy, holy, holy. Sacred are you. You are in a class above anything else. We dedicate you. You are special. Your character is holy. Nothing else can have that, that title in and of itself. And I just read this this week, and I don't know if it was the first time or if I was reminded of it, but in Hebrew, when something is doubly repeated, it adds emphasis. Holy, holy. But when it's thrice repeated, it designates the superlative and calls attention to the infinite holiness of God. Holy is good. Holy, holy is better. Holy, holy, holy. And then I'm not going to rest day or night for all of eternity. Holy, holy, holy. There's no other word that just encaptures God in every aspect of who he is and what he is in morals and in mind and in might as holy. Use that word in your worship, church. Speak that word out. Bring it back from our culture. Holy moly. Holy crap. Holy poo. Holy, holy cow. Holy, holy, holy. Bring it out. Start worshiping. Use that. Holy, holy, holy. Lord. Is Jesus your Lord today? Is he your Lord, really? Your master, your ruler? The language is, sir? Lord? Your God? You're an almighty God, which means omnipotent, all the power, all this thunder and lightning, and you are so powerful. You were, past tense, you are, present tense, and you are to come, the almighty Verse 9, and Johnny, come up, bud, and worship team. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sit on the throne, which is probably a lot of times that they do that, it lives forever and ever. So they're giving praise and honor and value. They're attributing a price to God. They're thanking him. I think of veterans and I love to see veterans at Costco. They got their hat on, you know, I'm like, I guess they want me to come up and say, thank you for your service. So I do it. And I just love meeting a veteran and hearing about their service. And when you see the medal of honor and you read about the medal of honor and these guys that receive such, you know, such a recognition for their valor, man, there's just something so special about our men and women who have, have given those great acts toward for us of valor and multiply that a few. Okay. Honor to you, God, honor to you. Whenever the living creatures do that, check this out. So I believe that this is the church represented here. 
the church falls down before him. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And what do they do? They cast their crowns before the throne. They realize their rewards. They were all of this that I received. It was all for you. It was all by you. It was by your power, your grace, your strength, your, the power of the Holy Spirit. What you did for me, I did it because you did something bigger for me. And, and now I see you and they just, whew, I got no glory in and of myself. It's all yours. You receive the glory. And the church bows down and falls down and casts their golden crowns before the glassy sea. You are worthy. They cry out. These two words here are taken from the political language of their day that the emperors wanted to hear. If Christians were being martyred because they wouldn't say these, these words to the emperor. And here we see uh, they're using it to who it really belongs to. You are worthy, O Lord. You deserve it. You're worth your weight in gold to receive glory, honor, and power. Why? Zit, you guys, zit. For you created all things, all this. You created everything. And by your will or your desire, they exist currently. Like you could just wipe it out, start all over, but it still exists. As Paul says to the Athenians, in you we live and move and have our being. We continue because of you. And by your desire, it was all created. The doctrine of creation prompts the heavens towards all-out, sacrificial, heartfelt worship. And that's how we're going to close today. We're going to close in all-out, heartfelt worship having a renewed vision of who God is in his glory. We're, we're seeing the Father in this case. Didn't get a chance to read a whole bunch of scripture, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Daniel. We will um, in the weeks to come, but <clears throat> what do we got for the last song? Okay, yeah. Um, we fall down. We fall down. All right. Um, guys, as we observe the throne room of heaven, let's just allow the Holy Spirit to take down the veil that separates us from the throne room of God. That's been done by Jesus. You might remember that. So that we are in his presence even now. And let's, let's get some practice, huh? Anybody need a little practice for this whole bowing down and casting glory and worshiping Jesus. The word worship means proskuneo. It means kiss toward God, to kiss toward. And we're going to close today, maybe by doing something, this might be the first time you've ever done this in your life. And it's kneeling before God in worship. I know some of you physically, like, I just can't. My body doesn't move that way anymore. And that's okay. But many of our bodies do, and many of our bodies have not worshipped Jesus, maybe since we've known Jesus, or for a long time. And we are going to let the position of our bodies today reflect the position of our hearts. And we are going to join with the song of the 24 elders as we cast down our golden crowns before the glassy sea. The song we sang earlier, Holy, 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 was written in 1826 for Trinity Sunday by Reginald Heber. He was the bishop of the Church of England, and he wrote the song because of Revelation 4, 1 through 11. And just as we prepare to worship, will you just put your things aside and go to prayer with me? And we're going to sing a different song, but I just want to quote these lyrics again. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, early in the morning our song shall rise to thee. 
holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity, holy, 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 all the saints adore thee, casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea, cherubim and seraphim falling down before thee, who worked and art and evermore shall be. Holy, 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 though the darkness hide thee, though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see, only thou art holy. There is none beside thee, perfect in power, in love and purity. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, all thy work shall praise thy name in earth and sky and sea. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty God in three persons. Blessed Trinity. Let's fall down. Let's lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus. There's room up here on the carpet. We specifically made 10 feet of carpet here so that this could be a place where we kneel in worship. So come up. Let's come and fill this place. Kneel in your seat if you're able to squeeze in there. Take a spot in the aisle. But let's just develop, maybe for the first time, bodies of worship. Bodies that reflect hearts of worship. And let's give God all the glory that's due to his name today.